Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who has not been able to play bridge since 2016 because I don't want to say the words trump card, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us remotely, as all our guests are recently, is David Pluff, the former senior advisor to President Obama, who ran his campaign in 2008. After leaving the White House in 2013, he has worked with Uber, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the nonprofit acronym, which you may remember created the app that was used uh, in the Iowa caucuses. Most recently, David is the author of a new book called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, welcome to Recode Decode. Great to be with you, Kara. So where are you from? I'm asking everyone where they're broadcasting from right now. You're at home, obviously. I'm so in I'm San right. Francisco. Yes. Right. Where yeah. you live, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's just get into coronavirus to start with. And then I want to talk about all because so many other things I want to talk about the election. I want to talk about uh, digital uh, democracy and digital voting and all kinds of initiatives you're working on. How do you assess the current political? I, 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 you can talk as a citizen, obviously, but the political implications of what's happening right now. Well, it's March 20th, right? So we're going to know a lot more every day of this and as we get deeper in April. But I do think that the what people insist on from a chief executive, whether it be a governor, a mayor, or a president, is when the shit hits the fan, when there's a crisis, uh, you're on top of it. You're transparent. You've planned for it. You're moving swiftly. And I think it's fair to say Trump has failed in all those regards. Mm -hmm. So I think as more people get sick, as the economy may go to a depression, certainly a severe recession, I think every day there's going to be more uh, analysis of what he didn't do. And, you know, all of it's on video <laughs> and and it's all available to the public. So, um, you know, first of all, we have to make sure we have an election in November. So I think states are going to have to have backup plans to allow everybody to vote by mail. That'll require a change of law. But, you know, at the end of the day, Biden, some of Biden's weaknesses, he's been in Washington forever. He's not the most exciting guy, um, I think, are going to be strengths now. Right. Uh, he led Plus the he recovery have to act talk much, but he doesn't have to talk. Well, much I like this. Right. I'd like to be I, I think he needs to be out there a little bit more than he is, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it has to be daily, but it needs to be close to that because he needs to be telling America what should be happening. It doesn't have to be a press conference. It's last two hours. But, you know, it can literally just be a short video. Right. Exactly. I mean, what's interesting is so how does this come together? Because one of the things that Trump has done is he said, you know, don't believe what your lying eyes are telling you. Um, there has been videos and, you know, there was a famous audio with him talking about um, grabbing pussies and it didn't matter. And he's been on video saying all kinds of awful things and it doesn't matter. Um, he either says, yeah, I said it or he says, I, I never said that or I never. And in, in this case, He's trying really hard. Yesterday's eruption at the media was quite right. fascinating. It was all about the day before he had sort of complimented one of these crazy journalists who was sort of pushing, I think it's the ONA network, um, was pushing sort of a crazy scheme about, I, don't even, I didn't even understand the question, but it was more about how the media was in cahoots with the Chinese, et cetera. And then today, another person was saying, how do you, what should Americans who are scared say? And he got into another fight with right. another journalist. So what, it's worked before for him to say, I really was on top of this. I really did do a lot. I wasn't slow. How does it, how is this different? I think what's different is this is affecting all of us. So, you know, the Access Hollywood tape, my view, should have disqualified him from showing his face in public, much less being president. But, you know, that was about his personal uh, behavior. This is affecting all of us. Now, he's going to try and do that. He's already trying to rewrite history. His campaign, my guess would be starting next week, is going to start spending tens of millions of dollars to run hero worship ads. Like about he how, came through in the yes, war. Yes, he came through, right. We're going to see all that, which is why I think progressive groups 
ultimately the Biden campaign are going to have to be in that fight. Uh, those that say Democrats should basically not say anything right now and just let Trump lead this, I think would be making a great mistake. We have to hold him accountable. And, you know, in this environment, it's literally every minute on social media. We have to be putting content in front of people. It doesn't need to be hoary negative ads with the bad music and the silly lines. It can just be his words and the effect of it. So I do think this is different, particularly because you also see what other countries have done. Uh, and other countries have handled this with more urgency, with more skill, with more honesty. So we have a comparison there that I think will make a difference. That being said, 44 to 45 percent of the country will never leave him no matter what. So that's not what we're talking about. It's basically 10 or 12 percent of the people that may be a play in this election. Right. And so when you think about, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, don't say anything. This is a crisis. We have to be national. It kind of you're saying it plays into his hands in that regard from a political point of view, because now he's scoring these political points on the national stage either by attacking the press or saying he was great. You know, the crowd was that big. It's sort of that kind of version of that. Well, first of all, let's hold him accountable so that I think that's the only thing that forces him to do his job, <laughs> you know, when he's getting criticism, when he's getting tough questions. So actually leaving aside the politics, I think it's in a perverse way, the only way to get the president to actually do his frickin' job. Uh, but then politically, yeah, we cannot let him recreate uh, reality here. Uh, and Democrats make this mistake. I remember back in 04, you, you remember this, Kara, mm -hmm. you know, some of the young people I work with now don't, right? But, you know, swift boat veterans for truth. No one's going to believe that against John Kerry. We don't need to respond to that. Um, I went through it with Obama, the stuff that, you know, he's not a true American and he's a Al Qaeda sleeper agent and all the stuff you didn't think would get uh, anybody or the Hillary Pizzagate stuff. We've seen it over and over again. But this time we have somebody at the mic microphone. So Trump, that's why he's doing this. I think he's doing this to basically he knows he messed up. And so he's trying to basically reset and say, I'm on top of this. Now, of course, he can't help himself because you mentioned the last two days, he mm -hmm. kind of went off the deep end. Right. Uh, First, he so, was like, everyone right. was like, oh, look, he's being. And to me, when they say he's being reasonable, I'm like, so like he should have been in the first place. It's interesting that people give him that third, not even the second chance, the 50th chance, essentially, or the hundredth chance. Yeah, well, he and McConnell, they just expect it from them. Right. And so they are graded in a, on a much lower uh, curve, I think. And so um, but at the end of the day, we have to keep bringing it back to where are the tests, where are the ventilators, where are the beds. Even these ships he talked about are not anywhere near the coast right now. Where's the truth? We just have to keep bringing it back to that because you see what's happened in South Korea and their testing regime has created a much different situation than ours. I just was reading a column from Peggy Noonan, the columnist from the Wall Street Journal, recounting how hard it was for her to get a test. Right. So it's not just, even A-listers are having, unless you play in the NBA, I guess, but everyone's having trouble. Uh, and the other thing is like, the way he's handled this is going to create more economic damage than we needed to have. Right, right. If we had handled it like South Korea, we would have been testing a lot more people, really isolating those that are at risk or who have, who have the COVID-19. Now uh, it's reckless. And, you know, we are heading into you just see Goldman Sachs, who, you know, we always look what Goldman Sachs says about the economy. Mm -hmm. Last week, their their estimates in the economy are four to five times worse than they were just last week. We've never seen right. anything like this. Right. right. Uh, and so we're heading into something that certain industries, I think certain geographies clearly are going to be in a depression from a clinical standpoint. Uh, but but we're all going to be in a deep recession. And I talked to Ron Klain this week, you know, mm -hmm. the former of Bolivar. Yeah, I had him on the podcast last week. Oh, so right. And, you know, so and he people forget he also led the implementation of the Recovery Act. You know, his point is this isn't like a snowstorm economically. It's not like when we get the all clear side, everybody bounces back and the economy comes back. We have workers, we have businesses, we might have an industries that are gone forever. And so it's going to take us years to dig out of this. All right. So wouldn't it be great to be president for the next cycle? <laughs> so when you think about that, how do you conduct an election during this time? I mean, now you essentially have Biden as the presumptive nominee, even though uh, Bernie, I don't right. know if you, since he, I looked, last looked, but he hasn't resigned from, uh, he hasn't left, uh, quit. How do you conduct a presidential campaign in this environment? Well, first is the election, right? So we had elections during the Civil War in 1864, during World War II in 1944. We can do this. It's going to require preparation, I think, for mail-in ballot access everywhere. Maybe that'll be what we're doing, because if this comes back like the Spanish flu in the fall, stronger than it did this spring, so we have to make sure we can vote. So, you know, you're going to have to, I think, really uh, reassess your entire campaign plan. Mm -hmm. um, so the candidate obviously is going to have to be doing a lot more satellite TV interviews, 
interviews like this with podcasts, teletown halls in states. Uh, you're gonna have to be doing a lot more digital organizing for sure. Uh, you're gonna have to think about the things that you would do in canvassing, which is still the most important, I think an effective way to talk to a voter, may not be available to you. So you've got to basically- going to house to house, going to house to house. Right, going house to house, you may not have that. Uh, and then are you gonna have debates? You know, that's the other thing that's actually less about the coronavirus, but if you're Biden, you have to plan for a campaign that has three debates for Trump and a campaign that doesn't have three debates for Trump and account for that. So um, you need to be wargaming all this out. And you basically have to have three campaigns. One if we're in lockdown, one if we're not, and then one if we're in a hybrid where there may be some states that are and some states that aren't. And so it's super complicated. But the Biden campaign now has the time to do that. Uh, and digital becomes more important, whether that's good or bad. That. So what is that? What do you mean? How do you how do you look at that? Well, I just think Facebook, Instagram, uh, you know, Snapchat, YouTube, Hulu, uh, you know, TikTok, which you can't buy ads on, which is is all uh, viral and organic. They were the public square before the coronavirus. They're more so now. Uh, and this is where I think I do worry about the Biden campaign. They're way behind the Trump campaign and sophistication sure. here. Right. Uh, and and they'd have to bring some of the people Michael Bloomberg hired into New York, down to Philadelphia. They're going to have to bring more people from Silicon Valley and elsewhere who understand this world. So even today, it's March 20th. Trump was asked by Peter Alexander about NBC News. What do you say about people who are scared? Uh, and Trump lashed out at him. So what Biden should already have out is a video saying, here's what I would have said to Peter Alexander. They haven't done that yet. I hope, you know, it's it's 1.15 Pacific time, but that kind of thing worries me. Like rapid response is not about the news cycle. It's literally about an hour after Trump mishandles that question for Peter Alexander, what's their social media play? Right, and so you're saying you're scared about that. They aren't very yes. responsive. They aren't, I know the people that are working on it and they're right. fine, but like it's not quick, it's not quick draw. Right. Because this is not a candidate who, he just wants, he, his, a lot of his message is let's go back to before, which there is no before. You just gotta be in the mix immediately. And they have time to get there. I think their team understands that, but they gotta get there quick because they're, they are fighting a different war than both Trump is fighting. And they're not meeting citizens where they are, which is we're all spending a lot more time on social media now than we already did. Right. And so right. You, that has, if you are not thinking Facebook and Instagram first, you're not winning an election. You just have to these days. We can argue whether that's good for society or not. It's just which we will in a second. Right. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so if you're Trump, what would you do? If, say you're running the Trump campaign. Well, they're, they're going to start advertising the hero worship ads. I would suspect as soon as next week, we're talking March 20th, it'll be next week, where they are just capturing Trump the hero, Trump the decisive decision maker, Trump who's, you know, making all the right decisions. There'll be people from battleground states talking about how much confidence they have in Trump. So I would be doing that. The one thing they think they have to be careful about, which clearly they wanted to do, was decapitate Biden and do like a 90 day blitzkrieg on him. Um, if I were them, I would do that as soon as I can. That's probably not now, but it could be in a couple of weeks because yeah. you don't get that. He's addled. He's this. And that. Yeah. You know, he's he's going to raise your taxes and he's going to get rid of your cars and you're not going to be able to eat steak. A bunch of lies. But that's what they're going to do. It's what we did to Romney. I mean, honestly, as opposed to lying. It's what George W. Bush did to John Kerry. It's what Reagan did to Mondale. It's the advantage an incumbent has. So I think Trump's going to want to define Biden in the race. Um, I would, by the way, this is less the campaign than the White House. I would stop having Trump be part of every one of these briefings. I'd have him do it a couple days a week. I just it don't. Because it gets it hung on. Right, right. I think he can perform better if you ask him to do it a couple days a week and then let the professionals do it the rest of the time. Also, it does hang on him. Everyone, it, if it goes badly, then he gets the blame. Right, like today did. This Peter Alexander thing was not a good moment. Right. Uh, and But he likes to be at the center of attention. That's he's, ultimately he's why the I, only star of the show, as George Romway says. Right. I mean, that's why I still think there's a chance Pence gets dumped because Trump just wants the three days where a new VP dominates the oxygen. It's why I think he's going to do debates. He needs that spotlight. He wants that spotlight. He can't help himself. Right. What does he do around the if you were in his about around these gatherings that he likes his his rallies? Can't do those. So I would go. I'd go virtual. Listen, if Trump Trump's first virtual rally probably gets 50,000 people, maybe even 100,000 people if they organize well around it, and they will. So I, I would go, I listen, he will be a smaller person in that setting. 
But they've used it, you know, as you see, Brad Parscale, as campaign manager, puts out the date on all of their rallies and they're finding infrequent voters, unregistered voters, even some Democrats. So that is a weapon for them that's now been sidelined. So I assume they'll find a way to do that virtually. And do they work as well, do you think, in the future, these virtual? Is, do you see any no. evidence of it anywhere? No. Even it's, smaller I, campaigns? I think it's deficient. I mean, I think in a really small campaign, if you're running for here in, in San Francisco, a supervisor's district or a state rep district, I mean, you could, if you did one of those every night, you could talk to a healthy percentage of the voters. But but let's not forget, how, how many tr- people in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, Michigan will decide this election? It's not that many. So, you know, if you're Trump, maybe, or Biden, you do one, you know, one of those every day in those battleground states and ask 250 to join. They've all got good data about who they're trying to persuade, who's a swing voter. Now, Trump, I don't see doing that because he needs the adoration. He doesn't want to be challenged by swing voters. That's something Biden can do. Every day, talk to 250 swing voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. And take the guff. And yes, take the, take the guff. Be a yeah, great thing he, to do. He seems to like to do. Yeah. He seems to like to go at it with, with them and stuff like that. All right, so you would do those and then debates not happen or they would happen and sort of the way Biden um, Bernie was done, like just the two of them. Yeah, I think you have to, though, you know, Trump has said he's not going to debate. I find that hard to believe again because he just he relishes the spotlight too much. But if Biden, if Trump doesn't debate, those are three of the biggest moments in any presidential campaign. If you're Biden, you've lost. So what are you going to do about that? How do you create your own big moments? You know, in the Obama campaigns, we were fearful about losing momentum. So you might remember in 08, we did a 30 minute television ad uh, with a live component. We had the president fly across the country, uh, you know, over a 48 to 72 hour period in 12. You got to find other ways to keep that momentum. But losing the debates would be a big blow to Biden, I think. So um, I, I, I hope, by the way, I hope they're all in studios. I much prefer that. Yeah. Uh, the and the crowds. Yeah. The town hall things. And and but who performs better in that? Well, actually, Biden did very well without I thought the, so. the crowd screaming, without yeah. the crowd sort of talking. And Trump does better in a crowd. I think that's uh, which right. Is interesting. All right. So last thing in this section. So, again, mail in ballots that who is initiating that stuff right now among the parties, all of them? Or why would the Republicans want that? Well, I think that'll be at the state level. Um, you know, to start, you need to have state legislators really pushing and putting in legislation to enable that. So we have to have an election now, because the truth is we have the Constitution as a backdrop. If we don't have an election, Trump's not president on January 21st. Right. right. <laughs> you know, that's the only thing saving us, because if there wasn't that, I think we wouldn't have an election. He doesn't get to stay. So we have to have an election. So I think you've just got to put pressure. And I hope a lot of that does also come from the feds. But it's got to happen at the state level. Now, the question is, Republicans in some of these states that don't have vote by mail will want to make it a one time thing. I think we should fight to make it permanent. But at the very least, we have to have that as a um, as an option for this election. So mailing, not digital. We're going to get mailing. into that when yeah. we get back. All right. We're here with David Pluff, the author of A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. We're here with David Pluff. Obviously, he ran uh, President Obama's campaign and has done a lot of things in Silicon Valley, including some digital things. I'm going to put you on the spot here and talk about acronym, David. Yeah. Tell me what's going on there. And I mean, I think one of the things that now seems like 100 years ago was this disastrous app in Iowa. Talk a little bit about that and what your involvement was. 
Well, I didn't have any personal involvement in it yeah. or even awareness, but so uh, explain acronym for people. Yeah. What, so acronym is a, a nonprofit. Um, it was investing in a, a technology company called Shadow, which mm -hmm. answered, I believe, a request for proposal from the Iowa Democratic Party. To I believe people. the worst name for a company in existence. Yeah, well, Shadow. hard to argue with that. Yeah. So um, they built a, a recording app for the Iowa Democratic Party. Clearly, a lot of people had trouble with the app. There was a, a coding error. Um, so unforgivable. The original Sinno, I think, both in Iowa and Nevada, is the data requirements were different this time. So you and, and you got to remember, a caucus is all run by volunteers. So in Iowa, you have thousands of volunteers um, now having to do a bunch of different calculations on different sets of data. A lot of them didn't want to even use the app. My understanding is less than a third of people said they wanted to use the app. So you had you didn't have enough capacity on the call-in center. You had Trump's people screwing with that when the number got out. So it was a catastrophe of epic proportions. I think we're not going to have caucuses anymore. So that may be an upside of this. I would doubt the next time we do this if we have caucuses at all. But I think the original sin was the data requirement. Then you had because even in Nevada, where you know they built I think a, a an iPad based solution on the tech side, it took them days and days to get the results in, uh, in a relatively small state like Iowa. So I think that it was the problem was the requirements, but obviously the tech failed uh, in Iowa. So why, why does it seem that Democrats aren't so good at the tech? It's well, so funny. Right. I mean, you, you, you used a lot of tech in the Obama campaign, but, but in, and you had your first, you had your first chief technology officers. There was right. a sort of forward leaning into tech, but it seems like Brad Parcell is the best technologist in politics right now. Why is that? And, and the right. Republicans seem to do it well. Well, so there's, yeah, as you know better than I, but for our listeners, uh, you know, there's tech, there's digital, and there's data. And those aren't the same thing, right? <laughs> so what I'm helping acronym with, I'm, you know, just I'm volunteering my time to them, is uh, we're, we're engaged in program work in battleground states. We're doing a lot of uh, boosting news and some advertising around Trump's response to the coronavirus. We've done that on the economy. We have to get better about being always on on these platforms. Uh, we've hired, as you know, a lot of people from Facebook and from Google uh, to work on the measurement. So we're getting real-time signal about what's working or not. So we are behind on digital. Part of that is we might flex during a presidential campaign and then we go away. So we have to have infrastructure that's in these fights, not just in, in federal campaigns, but in state legislative campaigns all around the country. Uh, secondly, data, I think, you know, as you know, uh, the data is, um, it's the enriching of the data, you know, mm -hmm. voter file information, uh, census information, commercial information, that's available to anybody. The question is, how are you enriching it? And I think one thing the Trump campaign does really well is they just put a ton of content out there to enrich their data. So they have a better sense than we do right now, I think, about who's truly undecided in Wisconsin, who's movable on what issue, who's leaning third party. Then there's the tech. And, and that is, I think, where we probably do sur we suffer the most for maybe during a presidential campaign, some tools are built, presidential campaign goes away, uh, and then we fall behind on tech. So I think we do need to invest in companies that are doing this from a nonprofit standpoint uh, to make this work available to progressive groups and nonprofits. So we're not going to fix this in 2020. We're just trying to survive 2020, quite frankly, which well, makes I, me super I, sad. I think it sets back the idea of digital voting, which I think is necessity to get more people yeah. voting. You know, the, everyone now, the idea of doing voting, forget it, even though. Every day, people have transactions on whether it's Amazon or Google or Tinder. They work just fine. And they, right. you know, even though there's data leakage and data possible abuse, we'll get to that in a second, they work well and they get you what you want and they, they have the correct signals. Why can't that translate over to politics and especially within the Democratic Party? Well, you know, perhaps you could, you know, if you're talking about elections, obviously that's not a party decision. But I would like, I'm, I'm kind of an outlier on this because there's even a lot of people in the Democratic Party who say, uh, digital voting is a bridge too far. Yeah, uh, that's Kevin Roos was just talking about that. Which to me is insane. I mean, we're doing everything on these devices, everything. The most sensitive medical information, financial information, education information. And if we could make it, if you could sit on a couch and vote in five seconds, think about that would do to turnout. Absolutely. So I'd like to see more Democratic mayors, governors uh, testing this. 
so we're not going to do it, you know, in 2022 or 2024, sadly, but let's get some uh, tests in the field where we're proving this out, because uh, my fear is the very last thing we'll do in this country, the very last thing we'll do is voting. Uh, and, you know, to me, that would be from a Democratic standpoint, not speaking as Democratic Party, just in terms of our democracy, a tragedy, because I think we could get turnout rates probably north of 75 or 80 if we did Absolutely. that. So. Absolutely. Especially among young people, right. especially among who don't want to do that. I mean, some people feel we should go back to rocks, I feel like. We're you know, doing like the census online. That's super important data, but, but we can't vote. So I, I'm not minimizing the security risks, okay? That's right. why I think we need to test and do pilots. But we've got to start doing them. This has to be the aspiration of where we want to get to, in my view, as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think acronym, well, not acronym, uh, shadow really sets it back in that regard? Mentally, it certainly right. does. Well, I, I don't think in reality it has to. But yeah, I mean, if someone, if a mayor says, I am going to try and do my next municipal election with some precincts, it's not even the whole city, uh, voting digitally, people might ask about that. And he'll say, listen, we're going to do it better. We're going to have better tech. So you just have to be willing to answer the question. So yeah, unfortunately, I do think it is a small bump, but I don't think it should be a barrier at all. Should it have backup paper ballots at the same time or some... Um, so it complicates the situation. Yeah, but right? listen, I mean, I know that people freak out because we're talking about election. Like we do A-B testing and everything in the world. Let's do some A-B testing. In some mm-hmm. of those precincts, let's have backup paper balloting and let's not. But we've yeah. got to start doing this in some municipalities and even some states. We just have to. All right. Now, you've been involved, speaking of, you talked about the importance of Facebook and Instagram. Those are Facebook, com- that's a Facebook company. Uh, you didn't mention Twitter. You didn't, and we'll get to Twitter in a second. But um, you worked for the Chan Zuckerberg. Yes initiative, which is not Facebook, it is Mark Zuckerberg by himself. You're doing what for them now? So yeah, I started in the very beginning to help them get set up the philanthropy, uh, stand up our criminal justice work, our housing work, uh, our immigration work. And uh, I've now, just because I have a bunch of other projects I've got to uh, allocate time to, spending less time there. I'm still involved with them pretty deeply in terms of all that work. They do a lot of advocacy work around criminal justice, uh, supporting the split role uh, commercial Prop 13 ballot initiative here in California in 2020. So I give them credit for that because as hot as you know things are for Facebook right now and for Mark personally, they're still willing to take positions on things. Um, but that's how I'm spending my time. And my, my view, when, when they reached out to me, was this was pre-Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. But regardless, I said, you know, they're going to end up spending tens of billions of dollars, maybe more of that over their lifetime. And if I can help them get off to a good start, that would be a good way to spend a few years. So that's why I ultimately decided to to get involved with them uh, back in 16 and 17. Would you get involved with them now? I mean, because a lot yes. of the Democratic Party does believe that Facebook had a really negative effect on, uh, on the Trump. On the philanthropic side, absolutely. I think they're doing really important work. You see all the work actually on the science side of Chan Zuckerberg right now, deeply involved in trying to get more testing here in the Bay Area. The education work I couldn't be more passionate about. So yeah, I, I would do that in a heartbeat. All right. What about how the company itself, how do you and other Democratic uh, advocates, Democratic Party advocates look at that? Yeah, well, my, you know, my involvement has been strictly on the philanthropic side. So this is more as an observer, right? As an observer, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so first of all, um, I actually agree uh, that we should not ban political ads on these platforms because then I think it becomes uh, even harder for an insurgent, somebody who's underfunded. But, you know, at some point, I do think you're going to have to fact check this stuff. I, I get how hard it is. Somebody's lie is somebody's truth. Somebody's political ad is not somebody's political ad. But I don't think it's sustainable in the long term to just have that be a wild, wild west. So I'd like to see more uh, progress there. The other thing I'd say about Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, you know, we built our own social networking uh, back in the Obama days. It is a way to organize. So um, there's a lot of negative that comes with these platforms as it relates to politics, particularly when you have bad actors. But it's also an important way to organize and get message out. So, um, you know, I think it's a mixed bag for sure. I know Barack Obama wouldn't have been president without the Internet. Barack Obama wouldn't have been president without our version of social networking back in the day. Um, Mm -hmm. So now Trump obviously leveraged these platforms quite smartly. What is so interesting, of course, is one of the reasons 
The Clinton campaign, uh, by the way, rejects this uh, argument. Mm -hmm. But yes, it, is, it is believed that Trump used these platforms more strategically and more smartly because he was underfunded and he just let the experts from these platforms inform what they did. That has credibility to me. I think the right has always had, uh, because they've been frozen out of regular media. Right. You know what I mean? They've had to find ways to get in. And before they had Fox News, they didn't have anything. And so a lot of the early efforts, I remember Ralph Reed, a whole bunch of people were online way before you know, Howard Dean got a lot of attention, but the right was much heavier online than other places in terms of reaching out to their their constituencies. And well, building them. the disadvantage we have right now is so profound. It's why some of their work, I think, at groups like Acronym and others, which are trying to to create content and and always be on. So we we have both a last mile problem. We talk about that in transportation, getting the content to the voters we need to reach. We also just have a content uh, deficit. They have Fox and they have Breitbart and they have Sinclair. And then as you know, Kara, they had these online publications in states all over the country, most of us have never heard of, that are massive advertisers. And they're largely all singing from the same hymnal. We are at such a massive disadvantage as a progressive infrastructure right now. Uh, and if we don't figure this out, we're gonna lose a lot more elections than we should just because of that content disadvantage. Is there any way that's fixed? Because they do march in lockstep versus, and there's the story of the day and you hear it over, I hear it from my mother and I heard it on Fox News and I hear it, you know what I mean? It moves very quickly through that ecosystem. Is there a way to do it when you have on one side, Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez, who's very good at internet, um, she speaks internet, or the Bernie bros, you have everyone talking from a different place, essentially. So I think that um, consistency is hard, number one. Number two, so even though Fox, as you know, their ratings are never particularly high on any given night, given how big our country is, but that content they put out is amplified a gazillion times over. So we, you know, we tried Air America back in the day. Didn't Al Gore have current TV? Like, so I don't know if we're going to have our version of Fox. We need to keep trying. But what we do need to do is we have, like, here's what we're doing uh, at Acronym is just every day in battleground states, putting content in front of people about the manufacturing recession in Pennsylvania, uh, the cuts to Medicare and Social Security, his response to the coronavirus. That's less than ideal because you've got to pay for that distribution. The other thing I'd say that we're finding is the content that's working the best out there is actually not advertising. It's simply boosting news that people aren't seeing. Those of us that are high information news consumers see an, like an article in the Pittsburgh paper or on the NBC affiliate about the manufacturing sector and say, that's going to kill Trump. Nobody we care about seeing it. Right. So right. it's going to cost a lot of money and going to need a lot of talent for us to get anywhere near the right. And so I think we are at a disadvantage because we don't have the North Star of Fox and we are not as command and control as the Republicans. But if we don't find a way to be in front of people on our phones and laptops every day, 365 days out of the year, not just in presidential elections, we're going to fall further and further behind. What do you imagine has to be done to do that. I mean, does there have to be some information czar or what among the Democratic Party? Because they tend to go five different ways. It's like, you know, I don't even know. It's like a goat rodeo to get everybody together. It is. I mean, here's what you need. You probably need a billion dollars a year, you know, that's just uh, feeding content to swing voters, to people you want to register. We're going to have a congressional election in 2022 where we're going to have a lot of people who voted in 20 who say, I'm not going to vote. So we've got to be in front of those people. And it's not just a campaign. We need to support what our elected officials are doing. If a governor expands Medicaid, we need to do storytelling about that. If a governor does something really remarkable around um, supporting the small business startup ecosystem, we need to do storytelling about that. We don't have any of that right now. So I don't, I don't know if it's a czar because we're not that organized as Will Rogers said, but we need to have both the content and the distribution smarts and resources, or it's just not going to happen for us because I don't see our equivalent of Fox coming online anytime soon. So stack rank what's important right now. You said Facebook and Instagram, but what, and that, which is highly disorganized in terms of, of, of what does modern media, the regular media system, the mainstream media matter at all then? It or? does. So okay. I, I think particularly local media, so local TV stations, people still watch that, but people go to those websites. So what I think we need to do a better job of is if we see, uh, again, in on the Milwaukee ABC affiliate, a story about Trump's trade war and how that's hurting the local economy. There's probably 50,000 people in that media market who may not see that content we should feed it to. 
So yes, it's super important content and it's still trusted. So one of the things I think we have to be better about as progressives and as Democrats is boosting local news content and feeding it to people. We always think too much about what's the ad. There's a lot of great content out there that we don't have to spend a dollar on or a moment of thinking about that's just right. sitting out there and we got to feed it to them. So when you're thinking it like that, again, it has it always goes to the campaign, whatever the presidential campaign is. How does it go to not the campaign? Well, I think, you know, there's groups like Acronym. Uh, there's other groups uh, out there that are doing really good work. Um, we They need to have the ability to be always on. Um, I think that you need to think about if you're a, a governor in a state, what's your local ecosystem so that you have a storytelling core that's helping you create content. And then you've got to think about how do we get it distributed? So the Biden campaign, by the way, my hope is what we see a lot over the next seven months is boosting news, not just ads. So I, I think it sounds obvious, but we don't do nearly enough of that. We don't do nearly enough of boosting the great content that's always out there that's more trusted. But it's going to take, you know, is this something that DCCC ultimately should do for their vulnerable House people, not just in their election, but over a two year period? I know people argue that's a permanent campaign. Hey, guess what, folks? That's where we're at. And permanent. Republicans understand that. And I don't view it as like a permanent campaign in terms of you're always trying to seek votes. You've got to be storytelling all the time about what you're doing, what you're fighting for, the decisions you make. And if you do that solely through the media, media is still important, but you have to have that last mile to get to the people you care about. Whether it's Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube, so, you know, YouTube. I, I think we are way behind on YouTube, in my view. Uh, I think Trump, this is where we always talk about Trump and Facebook. They are spending more and more of their money, as you know, on YouTube. Uh, and that's where they're going to peel away some younger voters, move some of those younger people to third party if we're not careful. Right. What about Twitter? It's getting so it gets so much attention. And, you know, I always say as FDR was to radio, JFK is to TV, Trump is to Twitter. Right. Well, I think it is a great amplifier for him. As you know, it, it skews more elite. Um, you have less of the population on there. But he uses Twitter as the first step in his megaphone act. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to Fox. And then it goes to uh, Sinclair. And then it goes to all these shady online uh, publications. Or so, it starts there and then it moves up the chain. To right. So, so, or it goes to television. So I think he uses it. Uh, he tends to just replicate his tweets on Facebook. If I were them, I'd be a little bit more original about what I'm doing on Facebook because there's two different platforms. And Trump himself doesn't leverage Instagram, I think, much at all. I'm glad he doesn't, but he doesn't. But he uses Twitter, I think, as a megaphone. So, And, you know, the truth is it's so fascinating on Twitter because most of the swing voters will decide this election or people were concerned about registering are not on Twitter at all. Hell, hell, in some of these Democratic primaries, uh, only 10 or 12 percent of the people use Twitter. But all the reporters are on there. All the local news media is on there. All the influencers are on there. So you have to use it in that way. Is it is it really is uh, a megaphone to drive a bunch of other, I think, ancillary uh, benefits out of how you use that platform? When you were talking about not doing political advertising, they decided not to do any. I think they did it. You know, everyone was like, oh, what a great idea. I'm like, I think they just couldn't handle it. And that's a smart because they couldn't manage what was happening. They weren't making enough money for it to matter uh, from their bottom line. Do you think Google did a better job saying, listen, we're not going to let them do lies and we're, we're going to watch micro targeting very carefully? And Facebook said, hands off anything pretty, anybody wants. Well, I think we're going to learn a lot about this, uh, probably, you know, as we review how those policy decisions played out in this election. We, we can all have some real time assessment of that, but I think we should probably be informed by uh, the data and the research um, when we look back. I think Twitter, it was a smart PR move, but it was highly symbolic because campaigns aren't spending much on Twitter because real voters aren't on Twitter. So uh, I think that, that we shouldn't overstate uh, the meaning of that. Uh, we're going to find out which approach was right. There, there's no doubt there's going to be YouTube ads that we think they should have not run. So that's always the danger when you kind of ride the white horse <laughs> is, you know, you're going to get mud on it. Um, right, yeah. So so we're, you know, we're going to learn about it. Yeah, the White House. I didn't. That's a political. I hadn't heard. Um, do you want to be in a political campaign right now? I mean, you are, but you aren't. Yeah. So I'm. I'm helping where I can, and I wrote this book, a Citizen's Guide, really yeah. for the millions of Americans out there who want to know what can I do, what else can I do. So I'm doing what I can. I think. The message of my book is people need to do more than they've ever done. So if the Biden campaign has something useful for me to do, I'm kind of a dinosaur now. So I'm probably best suited to deliver donuts to Philadelphia field offices. But if there's something I can do, I'm going to be all ears. 
All right. We're going to talk about the book when we get back. We're here with David Pluff. He obviously worked for President Obama, and he's worked for a lot of tech companies. When we get back, we're going to talk to him about his book, and I'm going to ask him a little bit about his experience at Uber and how he looks back on that <laughs> when we get back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. We're here with David Pluff, who probably needs no introduction. He's a very famous political. Do you call him a political operative, David? Yeah, political oh. hack operative. Hack. Yeah, hack. yeah. Let's just hack. Yeah. All right. He wrote a citizen's <laughs> guide to beating Donald Trump. So, talk about this. What is? Why is it a citizen's guide? Like, give me some details and high points of this. Well, the spirit of it is that. Um, I think a presidential campaign to the average citizen sometimes can seem there's so much money. You see the candidates on TV all the time. What what can I actually do? And the message is, this is going to be a super close election, and we better assume it. Uh, and if every voter out there, even if they affect two or three people voting differently or registering them, it, think about if millions of people do that, that's more than the win number. So the spirit is, you've got to get in the game. You've got to make sure your family and your friends are registered, that they're making their volunteer plans. If you live in a battleground state like Wisconsin or Florida, become a precinct captain if you have the time. If you basically got rid of your Facebook account, you need to reactivate it at least on November 3rd because you need to be sharing content, creating content. So it's a lot of practical ways for all the different ways people to get involved. But again, my message is don't get discouraged when if you're making four hours of phone calls or you're door knocking for four hours, if you can do that, and you think you only affected two people, think about your effort in the aggregate. Kara, uh, it's always interesting. I talk to people out here in Silicon Valley who might be engineers who say, it seems super efficient for me to spend four hours door knocking when I only think I reach three people. And I say, well, by the way, we need lots of engineers in politics. If you want to quit your job, that would be great. But voter contact is kind of what's available to us. And so let's say you travel to Arizona and you on a weekend, you did eight hours of door knocking and you only think affected six people. Mm -hmm. Well, if 5,000 other people also did it both of those days, you're talking about 60,000 people people. On the eight weekends between Labor Day and Election Day, that's almost a half million people. Way more than enough vote to decide this election. So the message of the book is you've got more power and influence than you realize. And because Trump is such a menace, the last thing you want to do is sit there and watch election results on November 3rd and know you could have did more and didn't. And he, you know, strolls out the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago with his grifter family and Sean Hannity, you know, in tow uh, and says, thank you, America, for a second term. None of us are going to want to look back and think there's more we could have done. All right. What else besides that's contact, which you can't do right now and probably not till the election. There's going to be a lot that's going to be limited. Well, there's phone calls you can make. There's postcards you can write. I always the great example I like to use is if you've got a neighbor or a friend who voted for Trump last time who says they're not going to. Whip out your phone and say, can I take a 15 minute video of you or 15 second video of you uh, and share it? If you see an infographic about Trump's tax cuts or about his reaction to the coronavirus, share it on your network. Like we this is to our prior conversation about our disadvantage in terms of content and, and the digital ecosystem. Yeah, we can make up some of that with spending and smarter work. But if we have millions of Americans every day only spending five minutes of their day, either creating quick content or sharing content they like, fighting back against lies, 
we don't get maybe to equality, but we get a lot of the way there. So you have to, and this is the thing I struggled most within the book, because I know people think I don't want to be in the, on those toxic sites. And I don't want to get into an argument with my aunt of or uncle Jared about how awesome Trump is. You just got to do it because if you don't do it, no one's going to do it. And the stuff you see that's just a flat out lie. So I do. I make this mistake. I'll say no one's going to believe that. Somebody will believe it. And you got to fight back. And it also gives courage for other people to get in the digital game. So that I think is super important. And that there's no state lines on that. We can do it when we're quarantined. You can make phone calls from your cell phone to people we're trying to register. You can write postcards. There's a lot you can do if we're all bunkered in for longer than we'd like. So are the campaigns doing that, getting people? Because they're so used to the other way. Uh, they right. are. They are. This is another place where they're going to have to adjust, where if you don't have door to door canvassing uh, as part of your repertoire or not till later, you've got to adjust. And I would be utilizing this right now. You've got people at home. You now they're taking care of kids, people working from home. I don't want to overstate the free time we all have, but people aren't commuting. We all have a little bit more time. And I think a lot of people would be more than willing to write postcards to swing voters in Wisconsin or call mm-hmm. some people in Florida. By the way, maybe the formerly incarcerated who are now eligible to vote would be willing to create some content. So I think part of this will be the Biden campaign, Senate campaigns, putting out a call. We need you to do this. We want you to do this. Here's your checklist for activity. I think a lot of people do it if if they're asked to do it. But part of my message in the book is don't ask. Don't wait to be asked. Mm-hmm. If you care about the future of the country, you got to get in a fight right now. Right. I, and, and in terms of Trump's advantage in this, he is online all day long and is on the television all right. day long, making either distracting or screaming or whatever. Um, even if it's bad news or he does a bad job, he gets the attention and sucks up the oxygen. Well, the, the Chinese virus uh, is a great example. So it's horrifically racist. But he's doing that because he wants us all to be talking about that. And it makes me sad because we should talk about it. We keep, we shouldn't have a president saying Chinese virus. But, you know, he doesn't want to focus on the tests and the beds and the masks and the ventilators and how he downplayed this. So he's a master at that. He's a master at distraction. So, you know, I think this is an example where there's a lot of good content out there. Acronyms done it. Eleven Films has done it. Uh, some of the former Republican operatives in the Lincoln Project have done it. American Bridge has done it. Great content that captures how Trump mishandled this. If you see that content uh, on your Facebook page or somebody sends it to you, you have to share it with everybody you can. Now, what's interesting is, is, is it interesting being sort of involved with people you used to go against? I mean, it's so funny. I ran into Joe Walsh somewhere and I'm like, I, I'm so looking forward to disliking you again. You know what I mean? Someday. <laughs> You know, I right. can't believe you're on my side. This is bad. This is, you know. This is- well, when you talk to all of them, whether it's John Weaver or Rick Wilson or Steve Schmidt, um, you know, they, they would like to be adversaries again. Uh, they've not given up on their party forever. But A, they're super creative. They're super tough. And they, I think that they understand uh, swing voters who might lean Republican better than I ever would. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really great to have them on the field. And some of the work the Lincoln Project has done has just been tremendous. Yeah. And I it's hope really- we see a lot more of it. Will Bloomberg be back? Will they, you know, he said he's going to spend with whoever. Do you really think that's true? I hope so. Uh, you know, we're talking today when he announced that he's giving the DNC and state Democratic parties a lot of money. We need him to do more than that. We need him to spend money on the independent expenditure side. Because as you know, he's got Gary Briggs, the former CMO of Facebook, a lot of great digital talent running that work for him. And it'd be great if they would basically, you know, every day be spending a couple million dollars, (laughs) you know, in these battleground states. And it doesn't have to be all negative on Trump. Some of it can be positive for Biden. Some of it can be comparative. Uh, But I'm a little worried because it seems like they may be backing away from that. So we're going to have to see. That would be a huge uh, uh, missed opportunity. From doing this. Well, we don't know because their announcement today was they're laying off some staff uh, who they said they were going to keep on payroll and they're doing a DNC thing. We need to find out if they're still going to do the independent expenditure, because if they're not, um, I certainly was counting on that, not just money, but they are smart. They are tough. They get under Trump's skin. All things super important. So that's a big missing piece of the ecosystem if they're stepping back from that. And in terms of uh, him deciding, announcing that he was going to hire, going to have a woman vice president, is that important or just part of the noise of the whole election? I think so. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, a swing voter, so somebody who's truly conflicted between Trump and Biden is not going to vote based on who Biden picks as the VP. Right. Uh, and Biden at his age, it's super important that he 
pick somebody that a swing voter and you and I both say they could do that job on day one. So that's the threshold. But I think a woman uh, will excite activists and may excite younger voters. So I th- I was very excited to see that. And the great news is we probably have 12 to 14 women in our party who both are ready to be commander in chief on day one and would be exciting. Right. And listen, that campaign could use a little bit more excitement and enthusiasm. Yeah. And in terms of uh, it's interesting, you said a lot of that. you're not doing Sleepy Joe exactly, <laughs> but you're down in that territory. Is that a worry for you? No. So here's what I think. Some of Biden's, uh, again, I think his solidity, his experience, his compassion, his empathy, all these things that are less exciting in a primary, I think will be great in a general election versus Trump, particularly given the crisis we're going through. But yeah, I think it's really, really great to have him have, you know, maybe a younger woman, but certainly a woman uh, making history uh, and being out there. Now, I don't think it necessarily has to be a woman of color, but I hope he really spends a lot of time interviewing those people, that would be tremendous. But here's the thing, I've, I've led this process before for a president. Uh, the comfort level here is super important because you're living with this person for eight years. The vice presidency is not a bucket of spit job anymore. Right, right. You know, they've got to be competent. They have to be trustworthy. They have to be somebody you get along with. So ultimately, this can't just be who we all think on paper is best. Biden's got to jive with this person and say, I'd be excited to see this person like four hours a day, every day for eight years. Right, right. Is there anyone you have as a favorite or you think are favoring one? Uh, I don't. I really don't, because uh, I know that we've got from the women on the stage with him, uh, Cortez Masto, the senator from Nevada, Stacey Abrams, Val Demings, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. We have so many people who I think would be exciting uh, candidates. There might even be some women in business, for instance, maybe former uh, members of the military. Some people mentioned Sally Yates, the former deputy attorney general. So I, I hope they take an expansive view of that because they probably start with 15 or 16 people who would be credible uh, commanders in chief on day one uh, and then begin to narrow it down. Yeah, Sally Yates is a badass. She's terrific. It'll be in- she doesn't want to be in politics, though, even though her husband thinks she should, <laughs> which is interesting. We did an interview and she's like, my husband does, I don't. So it's interesting. So lastly, let's talk very quickly, Uber. How do you yeah. look back on that? You know, it was a t- you were there right in the middle of, and, and let me tell you, Travis loved hiring you. <laughs> it was a big deal for him. Um, how do you look back on that in terms of, how you think about dealing with Silicon Valley and more difficult characters in Silicon Valley. Well, I'm glad I did it. I mean, I understand from a resume's perspective, uh, being a Democrat, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, at my age, I want to learn new things. So for me, in the last decade, I've been a top executive in politics, government, uh, the private sector and philanthropy. I'm a better person for that. I've learned a lot about it. And listen, the thing about, as you know, I I went a lot of what I did, particularly in the last year or so, was travel around the world and make the case for Uber, trying to get us regulated in a smart way, talk to policymakers, uh, local media. I still think that the platform is not properly understood in that there's issues. Obviously, there was issues around the company culture. Uh, I think there's a lot of workplace issues that need to be settled by government and companies like Uber need to be constructed part of that. But, you know, the ability to dial up work whenever you want it. we don't, you know, as you know, over half the people who drive on Uber drive less than eight hours a week. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do now. Back then, we didn't even count people who drove less than three hours a week. There were hundreds of thousands of people in this country alone who literally would just go do two or three trips a week because that's how they got their 50 bucks in spending money. And on the rider side, places like Anacostia, you know, the Bronx, uh, Queens, Hunter's Point here, um, you know, south side of Chicago, these were transportation deserts. It's really improved quality of life for people, saved them time. So I think there's a lot of, 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 of positive things about the platform. Um, and the truth is most people who drive on the platform in America, they are not full time. They don't want to be employees. I do think for those that want to be, companies like Uber should figure out a way forward for that. Mm-hmm. That's a decision you make. Uh, that, by the way, means the company is going to have a little bit more control of um, your relationship. Um, so and, and portable benefits. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders actually has talked about this, I think, quite intelligently, which is you can't think about this as Uber drivers or Lyft drivers or people who rent their home on Airbnb or TaskRabbit or DoorDash. You have to think about it from a sectoral standpoint, because most mm-hmm. people, as you know better than most, have four or five of these apps on their phone at any given time. So you've got to think about it from a sectoral standpoint, uh, the benefits, uh, the portability uh, and whatnot. So, uh, listen, I, I I find like for me personally, it was like getting a Ph.D. in the world at Uber, though, because it's such 
such a local business. So you learn so much about the cities of the world, their environment, their economy, their transportation, their politics. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that happen at the company. Obviously, I wish hadn't happened. I disagreed with some of them. I think we should have done more storytelling. I tried to get more of that done. I failed. So that's my failure. You're in the middle yeah. of a difficult yeah. CEO like that. How? What happens inside of not just Ubers of the world, but in places where there's toxicity, how do people within the power structure, but not the most powerful deal? How, how, did you learn anything about pushing back at power in that way? I mean, you, you've been involved uh, in all yeah. kinds of power. People. Yeah, I did. I mean, so um, this will, again, be an unpopular thing to say. The truth is, you know, Travis Kalanick was um, uh, his, his fortitude for good or for bad, his strength, his willingness to take criticism huge weakness when he was sailing in waters he shouldn't have sailed in. But, you know, when he was fighting what he thought was right, and sometimes I thought that was right vis-a-vis regulation, it was remarkable to see uh, and kind of a savant about some of these markets. But I think that what I convinced myself, quite frankly, was, um, you know, I would talk to my wife about this. When I would see things that might be too much for me, where I wasn't having the impact I wanted to uh, in terms of changing decisions. Should I just leave? And the point is, Uber is going to be a really important company in the world. And so if you can make it a little bit better when you're there, uh, you should see what you can do. And and so, yeah, I had some three o'clock nights when I wasn't sleeping, wondering whether I could you know, walk into that company the next day. Uh, the truth is, most people there, as you know, were really bright, really motivated, really good people. There were some decisions made, uh, you know, by Travis in particular that were wrong. There was also decisions he made, you know, that were right, that I fought violently uh, for. So, you know, listen, life is very short. We're reminded about that right now. Um, And again, I think I learned a lot being there. But, you know, was I more effective uh, with some of the politicians I've worked with in terms of understanding getting them to understand the decision you're making is the wrong decision. Let's play this out. Let's play the chess. That was frustrating to me because I'd got to the point in my career in politics where, for the most part, people's bias was to believe what I said, to understand the scenario I was laying out and to act accordingly. Sometimes with Travis, that was effective and sometimes it wasn't. So, yeah, I began to question my own effectiveness because I'm like, wow, I'm not accomplishing what I've historically been able to accomplish in my career. Right. And then we're going to finish up last thing. So we only have just a few more minutes. Tech companies sort of that started the they aren't so pretty tech companies thing. I think it really did. It started to be like maybe they're a right. little more malevolent, um, certainly Uber. And then it moved on to Facebook with Cambridge Analytica, you know, Google, Monopoly. Where do you think this is going to right now? Of course, nobody's paying attention to any of this now. And so they've all gotten a reprieve right. for a short time, at least. Um, right. And they're being helpful in terms of getting right. people able to communicate. Where do you think it zeroes out? You just finished last uh, yeah, year. Yeah, I thought a lot about this. You know, I moved out here in 2014, so left Washington. Uh, and, you know, really from that point forward to now, March of 2020, I would still say the optimism, the bias to action, the problem solving mentality uh, is so nourishing to me because in Washington, it's kind of the opposite. The thing that struck me really from the my early days at Uber, and this is true, I think, in every company out here, is everybody thinks they're changing the world first, working in a business second. Uh, it's really interesting to me. And I think part of that is folks out here, for the most part, do skew progressive. They might feel a little bit guilty that they're in a for-profit business. And so they start with, we're changing the world, our mission statement. I even remember talking at some all hands at Uber saying, guys, you're not working at the little sisters of the poor. You're working at a business. I happen to think there's some positive, uh, there's positive impact and, and you're helping parts of society, but let's not forget the two. And I think that's where some of the tension comes in when tech companies and their leaders get into reputational problems out here. I think they see themselves in the mirror differently than they are, which is they are running businesses. Their job is to return shareholder value. Their return is to meet quarterly numbers. And I think they get confused sometimes or they see themselves in a way that's false. And a lot of companies, I think, convince themselves that we are here to do good. And the the byproduct of that is we're also a business as opposed to we're a business first. That has really struck me. I'd like to see that change, by the way, and for folks to fully embrace that they're running businesses, not charitable organizations, and they have implications. And they have an impact that they don't 
recognize. They're very slow to recognize impact. And this is why we're, at, do you see massive regulation coming for tech or do you think they'll be able to push it off? I think there's going to have to be some. There has to be. I mean, I think there'll be public public outcry. So yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, I think that'll probably still originate in the EU. We'll, we'll ultimately see. Um, you know, here in the US, because no matter what happens in this election, the Senate's going to be fairly close. So legislatively, it's going to be tough, I think. But, you know, if, if Joe Biden gets elected president, he's going to put in people in these agencies and regulators who are going to have a lot of teeth. So right. I think they better prepare for that uh, for sure. So, yeah. What about if Trump wins? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously they've done some saber rattling. Uh, but at the end of the day, my guess is the second Trump term. Uh, my guess is I may be wrong about that, is a lot of that will relent. He's doing the saber rattling to fire up his base for the purposes of this election. Uh, I think mm-hmm. his government in the second term, the message will be businesses, large and small, tech or non-tech, basically lay off. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. See a lot of that. And so if you had to go to any tech company now, let me last question to work for, where would you want to work? Uh, none. None. First of all. <laughs> um, but, you know, I joined Uber um, super um, early, but it was still I was, you know, maybe employee a thousand. So for mm-hmm. me, being with something at the very, very beginning would be super interesting intellectually. So it would be true seed stage, true startup. That would be where I would. I don't think I'll do that, but that's where I would, I think, optimize. Because again, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm at some point want to teach full time, but what are the parts of my life that I feel some gaps in? And, you know, the Obama campaign and any campaign is in a way a startup. But to be part of a startup in the private sector, I think would be super exhilarating. And, and more than anything, I think I'd learn a lot about it. All right. Okay, David, this is really helpful. Thank you so thank much you, for doing this. And thank you for doing it remotely. Um, I'd stay safe in San Francisco. I know you're all, you're not allowed to leave your house. Is that correct? Or? We can walk the dogs and go to the grocery store. Yeah, that's about it. All right. It. Okay. How's that going? You know, my kids are home in a way. Well, for I mean, you know, we do not have the financial insecurity that a lot of people do. So that's what I'm concerned about. You just it is it is going to be a catastrophe in the Bay Area, uh, particularly yeah. if this extends past the April 7th deadline that Mayor Breed and others set. Um, you know, for us, it's actually I have a 15 year old and 11 year old. We're spending just an enormous amount of time together. I know. Uh, and I, I selfishly love it, particularly my 15 year old who sometimes, you know, doesn't want to spend much time with us. So it's been nice. But, you know, my concern is for those people, obviously, you know, on the healthcare front lines, people who, you know, are experiencing like Ann Kornblut, who, you know, works at Facebook, who we used to live, you know, down the street on Macomb Street in Washington from has COVID-19. So you're concerned about people who get this. Yeah, she just posted this on Facebook yesterday. Um, but then the folks who work in the retail industry and in the healthcare industry and in the restaurant industry, you know, it's just devastation. So selfishly for us, it's actually been quite nice because I think we're coming closer as a family. And you also have the ability, kids are scared about this. Yeah. What's going to happen? So you've got more ability to talk to them in, in a more fulsome way. Right. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on Recode Decode. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. David, where can people find you online? I'm at David Pluff on Twitter. That's probably the best way to find me. Okay. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.